Where I live, it's gotten pretty chilly out. Taking a walk in the cold is a far less pleasurable prospect than it was a few months ago, and so I find myself seeking out warmth and shelter from the cold world out there. What better way to find warmth in the kitchen than to add some heat to my food with the hottest of hot fruits, the chili pepper. Welcome to Seasoned. My name is Pranati Dewakar and I'm the host of Seasoned, a podcast that explores the politics and histories of everyday foods, recipes for meals to share with family and friends, and the joys of sharing good vibes, good tunes, and excellent eating with those that we love. After a little bit of a break for the holidays and a little dose of emotional recuperation from world events, we're back with another episode of Seasoned, and today we're talking chilies. There is no shortage of variety in the chili world. Jalapeno, bird's eye, gochu, poblano, scotch bonnet, habanero, banana pepper, cayenne, paprika, and the near-deadly ghost pepper. But the black pepper that we like to season our food with, freshly cracked, is no relation to a chili pepper. Chilies have come to represent, for better or worse, Indian and Chinese food, particularly from Sichuan or Hunan. But where does the chili pepper originally come from? Why do chilies make us want them so bad even though they cause us literal pain, teary eyes, and sweaty heads? Are we in a toxic relationship with chilies? This is a redundant question. The short answer is no, unless you're a professional chili-eating champion. To you, I want to say that you may want to talk to your therapist and search yourself for trace amounts of toxic masculinity. And finally, what's the story behind hot sauces and snacks that we use to add flavor and heat to our palates? We'll be joined with a very special guest today, Tom Padanilam, the force behind Tommy's Toddy Shop, a Chicago-based condiment line that celebrates great local produce and the traditions and palettes of South Asian cooking adapted for a Western context. So stick around for a very insightful and interesting conversation about Tom's food journey and his relationship with cooking, chilies, and the restaurant and food industry. In the culinary world that I grew up in, chilies are an integral component of most savory dishes. Indian food has come to be nearly synonymous with the heat of chili, although this notion of Indian food as unbearably hot totalizes and reduces the varieties of spice and heat profiles in Indian kitchens. Indian food does not have to be, and in most cases is not, blindingly hot. Regardless, the Indian green chili is inextricably linked with all of my favorite food-related memories. Pounded and reduced into a spicy thokke to have in small doses with blander foods, or minced and added to potatoes that go into my favorite thing to eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner, masala dosa. Kashmiri or Byadagi red chili powder lend a deep redness and subtle heat and red chili pickles like Tetsa from the western parts of the country are some of my favorite condiments. Chilies invariably evoke for me memories of evenings spent at the beach eating chili budgies. 
Budgie stands on beach sands, string chilies from their awnings, proudly displaying the waxy green peppers that will make for a perfectly hot, crisp, and fiery budgie. Plump green chilies are dipped into a chickpea batter seasoned with red chili powder, turmeric, and carom seeds, and then quickly transferred into a giant wok brimming with oil. The chilies, dripping with the tangerine orange-hued viscous batter, sizzle on impact, turning an attractive orange-brown as they fry in the oil. The stems of the chilies alone peek out for air. When the budgies are done cooking, they are adeptly fished out with a giant slotted spoon and wrapped in a rectangular strip of the morning's newspaper. They're occasionally served with a savory sweet coconut chutney. The Molaga Bhaji is my earliest beach memory, the real Bay of Bengal, if you will. The sun setting on the city behind me, waves calmly lapping up at the coastline as far as the eye can see, and the warmth of the budgie in my hand as the oil stains the face of a corrupt minister or two. The heat, both temperature and taste of the Malaga budgie, is indescribably warming. The crunch of the exterior casing gives way to the soft, warm, and cooked chili in the middle, and to this day, I bask in the nostalgic glow of this chili-induced haze of tastes, textures, and tears that defined my childhood. Anyone who has eaten a very hot chili knows this much to be true. Chilies can cause us to cry literal tears. Some people find that the tops of their heads sweat profusely, others start getting hot flashes, and all of this might make you wonder whether eating chilies is worth experiencing the symptoms of early onset menopause. Yet, we crave and ardently crave chilies and chili-based condiments. Unsurprisingly, there's some science behind this that also has to do with how chilies came to be so widely cultivated across the world and finally entered the threshold of kitchens that had subsisted merely with black pepper for century upon miserable century. Let's talk science and history together for a brief second. An important thing to know about chilies is that they contain an alkaloid compound called capsaicin. Capsaicin, say it with me. Capsaicin, it's a fun word to say. It's also the fun little compound that gets that party going in your mouth in a blaze of heat. The higher the concentration of capsaicin, the hotter the chili will be. Capsaicin increases in peppers as they ripen, along with how long they stay on the vine which means that fully mature peppers that are often red tend to have more capsaicin when compared to unripe ones typically green in color. While it's also generally true that smaller chilies are hotter than big ones, it's not always the case, and it's important to remember that the seeds and whitish veins or ribs of the chili are the ones that contain the highest concentration of capsaicin. This is what leads to that sometimes unbearable but eminently craveable heat that we love chilies for. While there's a lot of theories about where chili peppers arose, their place of origin is most likely in the area south of the wet forests of Amazonia and the Cerrado of Brazil. 
The discovery of the chili pepper in the New World was a fortuitous accident resulting from the colonial conquest that sought to find a route to Asia and particularly India in order to extract spices. Now maybe you know well the story of the Colombian exchange, but these colonizing plunderers found their way to the Americas where a spice called ají was being used to flavor food. Columbus, in addition to bungling a bunch of other things up, mistook this spice for the black pepper that he was in search of, and he named it pimiento after pimienta or black pepper. This variety of pepper was then carried back to Europe. It belongs to the genus called capsicum, and this is what we know today as the family of chili peppers, no relation to the black pepper. Through more colonial conquest and trade, this pepper slowly diffused across the world. Today, it's one of the most used spices alongside black pepper, but they're less cousins and more like two people that happen to live in the same city, uh, Spiceville. Before humans started carting chilies around to wherever they went, wild capsicums migrated because of their friends with wings, also known as birds. I know you wish I'd said flying lizards, but alas. The red fruits of wild chili peppers are small enough for birds to swallow, so the chili emerged and established itself in new places, wherever birds decided to take a little potty break. The thing with birds, unlike mammals, is that they don't have capsaicin receptors in their mouths, so they can't actually taste the spiciness of a chili pepper. That's why birds have played such an important role in spreading chilies, whereas non-human mammals tend to avoid them completely. Indian cuisine is built on the bedrock of the heat offered by chilies. But until the arrival of the Portuguese to the western coast of India under the direction of Vasco da Gama, chili peppers were not used on the subcontinent. Merely six years after the plundering of the Americas by these old world powers, Vasco da Gama arrived in India in 1493 and brought the chili with him. By 1542, the capsicum was known in Goa as the Pernambuco pepper. This name indicates their place of origin in Brazil, from where they then headed to Lisbon in Portugal and then made a year-long voyage around the Horn of Africa to Goa to the Malabar coast. The hot pickle in India we know as achai comes in part from the aki. The peppers themselves are called chilies after the Nahuatl name. These capsicums then reached Indonesia by 1540 as a result of either Arab or Gujarati traders bringing them to this part of the world. The chili pepper then made its way to China before 1550, perhaps through trade or pilgrimage routes between China and India or China and the Middle East. The use of the chili pepper in China is most common in the Hunan and Sichuan provinces, crossed by an ancient silk road that linked India and China. So you can say that the chili pepper was a real globe trotter, giving warmth to people wherever it went. But as always, some people take their obsession so far that it's either too uncomfortable or very amusing to watch them engage. I'm talking about the chili heads. You know, the ones that eat chilies for fun and then have their bodies undergo extreme pain, but apparently it's all fun and games at the end. 
We're not all competitive chili eaters, but some of us, myself included, still enjoy that little bit of a kick to our taste buds despite the pain. Why is that? In the words of Lucy Dacus, am I a masochist? Scientific studies show that we have evolved to develop preference for chili as we've been slowly exposed to increasing levels of chili in food. Those of us who like chili are not insensitive to the pain and irritation it produces. Instead, we just come to like the same burning sensation that animals and other chili-averse humans dislike. This is described in an academic journal article as a hedonic shift produced by the associations that we make between eating chili and social rewards, post-ingestional effects, including the enhancement of bland-tasting foods. In less fancy words, despite the pain, we like chili because sometimes eating chili is associated with better-tasting food. In other cases, it's, it's, it's associated with bravado or bragging rights. Chilies also stimulate a sensory warning system, which is actually harmless. Another theory for why we like chilies then, despite the pain, is that humans seek what are called constrained risks. These are risks that might cause short-term discomfort, but are not actually physically threatening or harmful to us. Eating chilies falls under this category of weird human behaviors and proclivities, much like taking very hot baths or riding roller coasters. Remember we talked about the devastating alkaloid compound called capsaicin that lends chilies their fieriness? Well, capsaicin is oil-based and not water-soluble. This means that capsaicin doesn't evaporate when chili peppers are dried. This results in two very important properties of chili peppers. The first is that because of this oil-based property, they tend to be as spicy as fresh ones, except they're more concentrated, so often dried chilies are even hotter than fresh chilies. This is not always true because the water in fresh chilies means that they can get to different parts of your mouth, making more taste buds scream even if there isn't necessarily more capsaicin. Either way, the key difference between fresh and dried chilies is how they move around in your mouth. The second effect of the oil composition of capsaicin compounds is that water will not help with chili burn. This is why professional chili eaters sometimes keep milk handy if the chili gets too hot to handle. The next time you're trying to show off your chili eating abilities, keep a glass of milk around and maybe keep the bravado in check. And yes, the capsaicin in chilies can actually hurt. Anyone who's been pepper sprayed or has eaten too much chili and spent the next day getting to know their toilet well might be able to attest. To understand how badly chilies can hurt, we'll have to talk about a guy called Wilbur Scoville. Maybe you've heard of him, or at least his last name. The measure for the pungency of a pepper is called a Scoville scale, and Wilbur Scoville created a test that measures the heat of a chili by answering this question. How much sugar water do I need to add to equal parts ground chili pepper so that the heat is no longer discernible? Chili peppers are not all created equal, so the levels of spiciness can vary quite a bit. 
The Korean fermented soybean and chili paste known as gochujang employs a type of chili pepper called the gochu. The gochu scores 10,000 units on the Scoville scale. As a side note, turns out that gochu is also slang for a penis. There's little bravado to this phrase, and it's the preferred term of grannies and little children that use gochu much like wee-wee. Compare the gochu to the spicy Thai pepper known as bird's eye chili, which racks up an impressive 50,000 to 100,000 Scoville heat units. That's nearly 10 times as spicy as the Korean gochu. The spiciest chili pepper in the world was bred in South Carolina and is known by the grim name of Carolina Reaper. But I want to talk about the Bootjalokia, which was the hottest pepper known to man until men, men am I right, entered the rat race to grow the hottest peppers. Unlike the Carolina Reaper, the history of this South Asian pepper goes back a ways. The Bootjalokia, also called the ghost pepper, bears in its name an unfortunate mistranslation. The boot in Bootjalokia refers to Bhutan, but it was confused for the homonym boot, meaning ghost, and this is the name that stuck to give rise to the English name of ghost pepper. The origins of this chili can be traced back to the Kukichin tribe in Manipur. The story goes that in the early days of the tribe and their warfare, cookies would tie the chili to a burning log of wood and lob it into a village to declare war. That's one way to declare your intentions. I personally prefer a sick burn via a subtweet, but that's just me. The Kuki tribe inhabit the hill tracts of Bangladesh, Myanmar, and India, and in the language of the Kukis, the chili is called Malchapong, which translates amusingly to help, the chili is swollen. Here, the Bootjalokia are sometimes smeared on fences or incorporated in smoke bombs as a safety precaution to keep wild elephants at a distance. While the chili can certainly cause pain and it's being used by the Indian military to develop a new kind of chili-based offensive, the chili pepper also holds the key to potentially treat various kinds of pain. Remember our fun little friend Capsaicin? Good guy Capsaicin allows nerve signals to reinterpret and eventually stop us from feeling the sensation of pain. This might eventually allow surgeries or even childbirth to happen without pain while allowing patients to remain fully alert. Chilies are truly magical in that the same thing that causes us pain holds the capacity to take that pain away and in some cases even replace it with pleasure. We are all pleasure seekers, especially those of us that love hot sauces to spice up our lives. I feel absolutely blessed to live in a world where almost all relevant culinary cultures have thought long and hard about hot sauces. There's the Algerian and Moroccan harissa, the Somalian basbas sauce, which means chili sauce, the South African piri piri sauce, or the entire range of Mexican hot sauces with world-famous brands like Cholula, Tapatio, or El Yucateco, or the Turkish Beber Salchasa that famously goes into Shakshuka, Israeli and Yemeni Jug, Chinese Dubanjang, and Korean Gochujang, which include fermented broad beans and soybeans respectively, 
Also, chili crisps, such as the brand Lauganma's Guizhou-based chili condiment, and Indonesian Malay Thai sambal or nam frik, Sri Lankan coconut sambal, the list is absolutely endless. The hot sauce that a major- majority of Indians and Americans love, venerate, and have come to associate immediately with the iconic imagery of a tall, clear squeeze bottle with ruby red sauce, a white rooster logo, and a green top is the inimitable sriracha. You've probably tasted David Tran sriracha if you live in the United States, and you're likely to be able to pick out its distinctive flavor from a lineup. But what if I told you that the sriracha we know here is nothing at all like the one that it's named after? David Tran, a Vietnamese refugee, came to the United States on a ship called Hue Phong. This is the name he chose to give his company when he shifted from selling hot sauces in baby jars from the back of his van to creating and selling his infamous sriracha along with sambal olek and chili garlic sauce. But actually, sriracha comes from the name of a town not in Vietnam, but in Thailand, where a condiment was created and named after this seaside town. In essence, sriracha is a hot sauce made from chilies, vinegar, garlic, salt, and sugar. But the balance of flavors in the Thai and Southern Californian version created by Tran are completely different. The Thai version skews runnier, sour, less spicy, and the American version tends towards pourable, squeezable, hot, and garlicky. The question of authenticity when it comes to food presents some tough questions about where the boundaries lie between appropriation and innovation. Some argue that Tran should have just named his sauce something else, and others point to Tran's caveat that he did not intend to replace or replicate the Thai sauce. The question still remains why he decided to create a sauce unrecognizable to Thai palates, yet decided to name it after a popular Thai condiment. Regardless, Hui Fong Sriracha is delicious, it has a crazy fan following, and the minimal advertising has somehow worked in their favor because bottles of Tran Sriracha fly off the shelves. In addition, most hot sauce companies try to keep costs down by using dried chilies instead of fresh ones. But Tran's company uses fresh red jalapenos from Southern California to make their distinctive sauce. Fresh chilies are pricier because of labor costs involved in picking them, as well as the spiciness of red over green chilies. Remember we discussed earlier that chilies get hotter the longer they stay on the vine? While compounding that is the problem of chili harvesting. Chili picking is notoriously hard to mechanize because of the irregular size of chilies and the delicate plants that would be uprooted by a non-human touch. However, the physical pain of human labor associated with chili picking has meant that chilies are getting more and more expensive because laborers' hands burn from the intensity of picking chilies and it is literally backbreaking work. New Mexico's hatch chilies, which are famous across the US for their taste and their long history, are celebrated with a two-day festival with thousands of visitors from all over the country. But these same chilies depended on itinerant immigrant labor from across the border in Mexico that commanded less pay than domestic labor. 
Now, Mexican immigrant laborers no longer want to pick chilies because of the physical pain and strain involved in their harvesting. What will happen to the hatched chili? Agricultural labor practices have often hinged upon unequal, racialized, or classed divisions of labor. The farmer protests currently going on in India, for instance, demonstrate the failure of a government that doesn't take its food producers seriously. India has experienced a spate of farmer suicides for years as a result of failed crops, lack of price support, and profit extraction by middlemen in the chain of food production. If we are to continue envisioning a sustainable, fair, and respectful relationship with our food and where it come from, comes from, then farmers, and particularly more oppressed communities involved in agricultural labor, must be protected, cherished, and treated with the respect that they deserve. The Indian government's framing of farmers as anti-national or traitorous for protesting unfair regulations will eventually fall flat on its face because farmers and their labor are quite literally essential to our survival and we have responsibility in turn to ensure their survival. Okay, I've talked chili history and politics for long enough. Now, I'm very excited to invite a special guest to today's episode whose insights into food preparation, culture, and politics have added so much richness to how I've been thinking about food. Please welcome Tom Padanilam to Seasoned with thunderous applause that I cannot hear, but will be content to imagine resounding across all the households tuning in to this episode. Welcome to Seasoned. We just met a couple of months ago when I started making this podcast. Probably one of the best things that could come out of the podcast. So thank you for agreeing to come on my show. Thanks for having me. Tom is the owner, creator of Tommy's Toddy Shop, which I will let him introduce. So please take it away, Tom. So Tommy's Toddy Shop is a condiment company that specializes in South Indian flavors. Uh, so we kind of go through some classic recipes and reinterpret them for use in like the American palate and Western palate. I guess Western context, not palates. The, the flavors are very much for an Indian palate. And I'd like to think they are unapologetic. What did you grow up eating and what brought you to this idea of starting Tommy's Toddy Shop? Whatever my mom and dad would cook is what I would eat. And that was essentially all I ate other than the occasional school lunch. Um, we very rarely ate outside of the house. And if we did, it was at like another friend's, like another Malayali family's house. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a couple of Gujarati and like Andhra dinners here and there but that was that was pretty much it where did you grow up in springfield illinois by way of kerala i was born in changnasheri and we moved to springfield when i was six what are typical malayali foods (laughs) it's it's kind of a running joke that whenever i would ask her what was for any meal it was just Chorum kariyam, which is rice plus curry. So it could be a rice plus a thorin, which is a stir fry with grated coconut or chicken curry, appams, beef stew, beef fry, kappa, fish, a lot of fish. When did you start cooking these foods yourself? When I was in college, I got an apartment with a friend my sophomore year. So when I returned home, 
to Springfield for the summer. After my freshman year, my parents gave me a rundown of some like basic things that I grew up eating. Um, it really wasn't anything too complicated. It was just like, here, here are some box masalas, learn how to cut an onion, learn how to cut some ginger <laughs> and garlic and, and have at it. And I just kind of, I really fell in love with the process of it and mm-hmm. like the idea of making something with my hands from start to finish. And people would always tell me it tasted good. And I refused to believe them for like the first five or six years that I was cooking. <laughs> Why is that? I just, I think I had a lot of uh, self-doubt. And I was like, oh, you're just saying that. You're just saying that. But then eventually I was like forced to believe it after five or six years of hearing that. What was the aha moment where you realized, ah, I can really cook? I think it was when I would go home to visit my parents in Springfield and they would just ask me to do the cooking or my mom would have me take over at some points. I was like, oh, yeah, I clearly know what I'm doing if they're letting me like make them food. Yeah, that's when you know you've really leveled up, when Mm -hmm. your mom relinquishes control of the kitchen and she says, okay, have at it, because my mother, until very recently, would not let me into the kitchen because because she didn't want me to move things around or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think she thought I wasn't that good of a cook. And then one day I cooked for her and she was like, okay, you're cooking every day now. And I was like, no. (laughs) Now when you cook, you work at a restaurant, but you're also cooking at home. How do you balance the kinds of foods you're cooking there and at home? Do you find yourself cooking different things? So at the restaurant, pre-pandemic, I was mostly making like salad. Like my station was garmanger and fries. So mm-hmm. I was mostly making fried foods. So we had the French fry Manchurian, mm-hmm. um, which are like delicious French fries. Seasoned really well, uh, covered in a Manchurian sauce and aioli. The Manchurian sauce is classic, like, Indo-Chinese sauce. Very, like, tomato-y, soy sauce, some aromatics with ginger and garlic. All house-made, cooked down for, like, several hours. And it got really, like, sweet and savory and, like, really complex. So we would also make a uh, wadapau. Pretty traditional, but also a little unconventional. Um, it was served on a pao, and the wada was pretty straightforward, but we also added a bhajia, an onion bhajia, as well as uh, emerald or green chutney and uh, tamarind chutney. And I was also making just like the chana chat, so chickpeas, yogurt, tamarind chutney, bundi sev, chat masala, and like an herb salad on top. Uh, so I was mostly making food that I wouldn't really make at home or like, you know, wouldn't really make sense to make that consistently at home. So I was still able to kind of venture out and explore different regions of India that I was interested in cooking in. I make a lot of Italian food, just a lot of like whatever I see on Bon Appetit that sounds interesting too. Mm. What do you cook at home nowadays? A lot of uh, lentils and rice, honestly, and a couple like veggie stir fries. Nothing too exciting, just trying to get through the pandemic day by day. Yeah, I hear that. When you say lentils, do you mean South Indian style like a sambar or like a dal? Do you switch it up? Do you? I like to switch it up. We do sambar. Uh, my partner is Gujarati, so, and she likes to make a really nice Gujarati dal. Just a little sweeter and runnier than dolls that I'm used to. And she also incorporates peanuts and cloves, which I which I think is really interesting. 
how did you come up with the idea for Tommy's Toddy Shop? So this idea was kind of like bred out of the pandemic. With indoor dining completely shut down, the chefs were looking for different ideas and like revenue streams. And they kind of came to each of the cooks at the time and were like, do you guys have any ideas for anything like interesting or cool you would want to do or like have always wanted to pursue? And I just kind of had this idea running in the back of my head for a while because I think like for me a big part of cooking was to share the flavors that I grew up with in like a fun and exciting way and I wasn't really ready to operate my own restaurant yet so I thought a condiment business of some kind could do really well because nobody is really making like the kinds of achars and podis and sauces that I make and I, so I thought it would be really interesting and just fun to pursue as a project. And I got to like work with the branding and the design and it's, it's been a, a fun experience overall. I have to say the first time that I tried your tomato toke um, at Bindu's house, I was completely blown away. It was really good. And I think also the thing that you do is that you encourage the use of these condiments outside of their context without disrespecting their origins. So like you said earlier on, it it really is for an Indian palate. I didn't feel in any way cheated or disappointed that it was something completely unrecognizable. It was the exact opposite, that it was actually something that was very nostalgic, something very familiar. But then you encourage your customers to put it in different kinds of dishes, right? You you say, put it on your uh, salads, put it in your soups. And I think that's really interesting. What are you trying to do with these condiments? Because I, I, I know that this seems to be coming from a broader philosophy of how to use these condiments from specific areas of the world in cooking in the western context i mean i think an interesting thing with these like condiments and achar in in general is uh through working at the restaurant i just saw how versatile they could be you just need to have at least for me from a south asian perspective like i would never have thought to put achar on a pizza like those two things just don't make sense to me but when i saw it being done at the restaurant it was like oh of course like why wouldn't i want that Mm -hmm. and then the 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 ideas just started flowing after after that initial hurdle was broken for me or like like got i got over that initial stigma of like no this i need to decontextualize this and it can be delicious in so many new ways that I didn't even think of. So right now we have the tomato toke, which is a style of pickle from Andhra Pradesh. We take local uh, g- greenhouse tomatoes and we kind of break them down and salt them overnight. And then they get cooked down for hours the next day um, with ginger, garlic, curry leaves, mustard seeds. Um, and it gets to a like saucy consistency and it, it's it's really spreadable and, and enjoyable and it just really it goes well with pretty much everything um we also have a product called coco podi which is essentially just a chamandi podi which you would find pretty regularly in south india um, this one was inspired by one that my parents brought back from Kerala maybe four years ago and also by a recipe 
that I saw online um, from this restaurant called Bad Saint, a Filipino restaurant in DC. They use like a very similar process of breaking down, grinding fresh coconut, roasting it, and then combining it with aromatics. But they also used mushroom powder, which I thought was really interesting. And it, it could bring a, like a strong umami flavor to umami. it. Yeah. Um, and then I also wanted to add the curd chilies. Curd chilies. Yes, chilies, the hero of this episode. The hero of this episode. Yes, tell us more. I mean, that idea just came because I wanted a little more heat in the product mm-hmm. and I wanted a little more depth of flavor than what I was getting. And I just was kind of looking around or spice rack and I found the curd chilies. And then I just had the idea of doing it on my own, like making my own curd chilies. For those who don't know, what is a curd chili? So a curd chili is typically like a long green chili that has been slit and marinated in yogurt or buttermilk and other spices and then laid out in the sun to dry. Typically, this process takes about three to five days because after the initial dry, you're putting it back into that marinade of yogurt and spices, uh, letting it re-soak, and then drying it out again, marinating again, letting it dry out. And you go until they're like tasty enough. So three-day marination and drying out in a pizza oven. That's so innovative because there is no sun to be had right now in Chicago, I imagine. Correct. And I feel like the sun that we have would not rival that of like the South Indian sun. I think it would <laughs> yeah, take a little bit I, I can attest to outside that. in Chicago. <laughs> so when you put the curd chili in this, do you think that the chili gets fermented? And B, what does it add to the flavor of this pudi that you're making? I think it it works really well with the coconut and the mushroom powder to just amplify this spicy, aromatic flavor that I'm going for. The The chilies do end up being fermented, which, you know, naturally boosts like the umami flavor brought it all together i think without it i was not really happy with it but after tasting it with the curd chili i was really into it i just ordered this today and i'm very excited for it to reach me please go order this product i'm sure it's going to be amazing based on the toku that i tried from you but how would you recommend that i use this powder in my in my cooking or my food so i've i've used it just kind of straight up on rice, on eggs. I've also made a torin, um, which I think I, I talked about earlier, which is just a any kind of veggies stir fried with coconut. So instead of adding fresh grated coconut or frozen coconut or even dry coconut, I just throw in the podi towards the end and kind of toss mm-hmm. all the veggies in that. And then to serve, I'll, I'll add a another helping heaping like tablespoon of the podi on top and it, it comes out really nice and i think it really replicates the flavors of a thorin while like pushing it even further i love that uh my mother makes something similar with uh green beans or cabbage mm-hmm. or what what have you any kind of fresh vegetable she'll just cut it up fry it with you know the usual seasoning of mustard seeds urad dal and broken red chilies and then she'll add tengapuri which is i think the tamar version of this powder that you described from mm-hmm. kerala mm-hmm. uh, both are southern indian states 
And I think that just adds so much uh, because if you don't have fresh coconut on hand, which I think in the U.S. it's very hard to, you know, get fresh coconut and then break it and then scrape it out. It's it's, It's a lot. This is perfect, right? Because you just sprinkle some in and it just adds that burst of flavor. Exactly. When you say that you want to preserve the flavors for an Indian palate, what does that mean to you, especially in terms of heat and spice? I guess to me, in terms of heat and spice, heat is relative, I suppose. Like, I I don't tout that I, like, make the spiciest stoker or, or products. Like, I, the heat is not really something I'm going for. Because I, I think you you can always make things more spicy if you need it to be. And if I had a, a hot sauce of, of some kind, like I would, you know, want to focus on like the heat element as well as flavor. The heart of Indian cooking is really at like the base of you know, frying the aromatics and then frying the spices properly. And so I am not shy with either of those things. And even with the kokopori, I smash probably pounds of ginger and garlic uh, by hand in a mortar because I feel that it gives me like a better flavor for that. And I, and I think it really shines through in the product. That makes sense because when you cut something up, you're not allowing the aromatics to fully release. You're just sort of dicing it. But you know, when you crush it, it releases the juices that contain all the aromatic mm-hmm. qualities. Do you think that the curd chili allows you to add the spicy element while also being a bit conservative in the way that you're adding that? I do think it, it allows me to control the heat I want a little bit more um, because these have been, you know, marinating in yogurt, intense, like fresh heat that you would get from like a Serrano chili or an Indian, uh, like the long chili. I, I don't think you would get that level of intensity, but I think you get a more nuanced heat with this. And that's more of what I'm going for. What kind of chilies do you use for the curd chili? Uh, we use Serrano chilies um, this time, but I plan on using long green chilies next time. Whenever I've gone up to Devon, they're always listed as Indian long green chilies. This is the sort of elusive chili that I (laughs) never seem to find in a local grocery store. So Devon is the Indian corridor of grocery stores, restaurants in Chicago to the northwest Mm. of the city. So every time I get green chilies from there, because it's so central to Indian cooking, especially South Indian cooking, I just freeze them. But then they end up becoming kind of blackened um, and they don't have that sort of fresh green quality after a point because I think they're going bad and I can't really (laughs) use them anymore. So I'm always on the hunt for a good green chili that approximates that long green chili that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Sometimes I try to use the bird's eye chili, but I think that's a couple of Scoville, maybe a couple of thousands (laughs) of Scoville units. Above what you're looking for, yeah. Hotter. You, You know, you can have fresh green or red chilies. You can have dried red chilies. You can have non heat inducing mm-hmm. chilies like, you know, paprika is a kind of chili pepper, which is not true, spicy true. or hot at all. So what is your preferred chili to go to? My ideal chili is probably the Serrano just because it's solid amount of heat. Um, it's always accessible. And I, I think it, it could work from like an Italian recipe to an Indian recipe. Like, I don't think you could go wrong um, unless mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. go overboard with them. I have definitely had 
the bad luck of getting some extremely hot serranos. What is your verdict on the seeds of the serrano chili? Do you scrape them out or do you just toss them in? So at my first cooking job uh, at Tata, which is which was a Kerala street style uh, vendor at a food hall in the West Loop, we would always have mm-hmm. to scrape out the guts of every serrano chili we cut and we... It was an Indian kitchen, so we went through a lot. There were like pounds and pounds of chilies that I had to like gut out. And after that, I had no intention of ever doing that again. And I, to this day, I will not scrape out the inside of a chili. I'll just use a little bit less of it if I think it's going to make a difference. The flavor um, is in like the ribs and the seeds. I think you're losing a lot of flavor right. when you're scraping that out. I think we discussed this in a previous conversation about how you think about the origins of certain recipes and how you pay homage to those origins while also being creative and innovative. So how do you feel about this movement to decolonize food in America? And what does that word evoke? What are the problems that you see in using that word, if any? I think in how I've seen decolonization used in most popular aspects, it's Definitely just getting away from the intention of what decolonization is, which is dismantling white supremacy. Also about land reparations. But I've really seen it used as like a marketing ploy by a lot of people. And, you know, it, it sounds great. Like decolonize is such a strong, meaningful word. And that's not to say, you know, like people aren't taking steps to actually like address decolonization. But I think... The context in which I've seen it used is mostly like an eye-grabbing marketing tool. What does it mean then to make food respectfully? Um, And what are the principles that you stick to in the process of innovating and creating these condiments for your line? To me, I think it's always important to explicitly state where your like inspiration is coming from. So for me with the toko, it was really important to state in pretty much like all the marketing for it that it, this is from Andhra Pradesh. Like I did not invent this, um, but I do really enjoy it. And I think we get some like really great tomatoes in Illinois. And I, was, I had just never had anything like, like it. And I was very excited to make it and introduce it as like a part of Tommy Sadi Shop. The kind of products that you put out are very different from you know, what is broadly construed as Indian food in the U.S. And why is that? Why is it that Southern Indian food, the the kinds of which you're making, haven't really made that much of a dent in the American palate? I mean, I think a lot of that is tied to immigration. I think if you look at the wave of immigrants that came to the States, it was probably mostly North Indian. And I also think that Indian restaurant culture in America is definitely catered towards like a white American palate. Also, just like the kind of immigration that you are getting from South Asia into the States, especially from Southern India. uh, I think a lot of it are, are more like professional class people who are risk averse. Everything in this country is showing you that you're not wanted, so why would your flavors be wanted? I think that's a good point that you make, that a lot of migration from southern India is very professional, service, white-collar kind of migration. And I think that's really linked to caste in many ways, because I think with the stringent 
immigration laws um, and the, the more recent IT wave of immigration, a lot of Southern Indians happen to be also upper caste. And I think this is tied to in India, how a lot of upper caste people may not run the kind of establishments that offer cheap good food it's also tied to upper caste people doing service jobs as a mode of respectability that is transported here in many ways so you don't see that many southern indian food establishments except maybe the udupi restaurants and that has a longer history even in india and they're offering pure vegetarian Brahmin food for other Brahmins who've moved into the city. And so I think you're, you're so right that Southern Indian food has not been brought to the U.S. at all in the same way that maybe there's more variety of Indian foods in the U.K. because of it. It's very different history with Indian immigration after colonization and independence and all of that. There's been more class variation in the types of Indian populations moving into the UK mm -hmm. compared mm -hmm. to the US. I was going to ask you, what is a chili-based dish that you've enjoyed making or that you really enjoy um, eating? So one that I enjoy making and eating is the chili cheese naan that we make at Supercana. This is Oof. green chilies used in a couple different ways, and I think it's really interesting and a, and a couple really cool techniques. Uh, we take green chili achar and puree it, and then fold it into mozzarella animal cheese. And that is the base of the pizza, essentially, the chili cheese naan. And then we add some gruyere as as well as the, the chili cheese cheese. And we also ferment uh, thinly sliced jalapenos overnight. Just we salt them and let them sit out. And then they kind of break down. Mm. The flavors develop. They get a little sweet. They get a little hotter. I mean, they kind of provide this like really nice bite of acidity and heat and work to like provide some texture in like a most cheesy pizza. That sounds delicious. And I also love that you use amul cheese because I feel like growing up in India, that was the main kind mm -hmm. of cheese that we ha we had and we still have. I feel like, you know, an amul cheese mm -hmm. sandwich or a chili cheese toast is the best way to eat bread <laughs> totally. in my opinion the various modes of preparing and using the chilies too we use jalapenos mostly at the restaurant actually i remember mm -hmm. when i first Thanks. started working there it was my first time working at like a full-scale restaurant and working the line yeah i was in charge of making the emerald chutney which is just a classic uh, coriander and mint chutney that you see in a lot of indian cooking for whatever reason we had a batch of like extremely hot jalapenos so for the first like 10 days that i worked there i was making this emerald chutney every day and it would come out extremely hot and i was following the recipe to a t and everyone was like what's going on like why does this keep happening like dude you keep doing this and i was like it's not me it's the jalapenos and i was just <laughs> under like so much stress and figuring out so much at the time and i was like why whenever i make the green chutney every time it's kind of different because of the variation in the heat of the chili and mm -hmm. especially the kinds of chili that i'm using because i think jalapeno is slightly less hot yes. than serrano 
And then serrano is slightly less hot than、mm-hmm. the Indian long green chili, which is slightly less hot than the Thai green chili. So, depending on what I get, I try to just vary the amount of green chili, but I always seem to get it a bit too spicy. And then I have to calm it down by adding some yogurt. But then that means that it doesn't、exactly. last that long because、mm-hmm. you have to eat it pretty quickly. <laughs> I love a good green chutney, and I think that's one of my favorite condiments to have on hand because I, I feel like it's an Easy thing to make. You just put some cilantro. Do you call it coriander or cilantro? I say. I heard you I calling it both, coriander. Like interchangeably, like... it, it doesn't really、mm-hmm. make a difference to me. I guess if I'm if I'm speaking to someone that is American, I would say cilantro. When you develop these recipes, what does the process of trial and error look like? How do you get started on an idea, and how do you see it through? Like, can you give us an example of how you did this? With um. So with the Kokopori. I had the idea sitting in the back of my mind for a while, and it. I just didn't know how to execute it in a way that I thought would be, you know, kind of interesting and new, while still staying true to the、uh, base inspiration of the Chamundi Pori. I think at the time I was just reading a review of a of a new Filipino place, the Kasama, that opened up near me. And it just reminded me of this like Bon Appetit recipe I saw for、uh, the palapa, which is the re- the other recipe from the restaurant Bad Saint that I got the inspiration from. So I think that really just brought together those two ideas in my head, and I had a recipe to go off of, and I had I saw the technique, and it seemed to make sense with the technique that I thought I should use for the chamundi pori. And between having this idea and getting the product ready to be bottled and sold, how long did it take, and what did that look like? Probably took about a week,、um, and it really just entailed、uh, go like starting with the base recipe,、um, making one batch, seeing what you liked and didn't like about it, making another batch, adjusting. To to your liking, and then just repeating that process until、um, I feel comfortable like sharing it with the chefs, and they they'll try it, and then they'll have their notes, and then we kind of go back and forth, finalize the recipe, break it down into grams, and then it's ready for production. Wow, a week is an incredibly short period of time to develop the kinds of amazing products that you do. How do you feel like the pandemic has shaped your relationship with cooking, particularly、um, at home? I think many people are in this boat, but I am just exhausted with the idea of having to feed myself two to three times a day, and I really don't enjoy it at all anymore. Although I will say,、oh, my, my、no. friends got me like a really nice apron for Christmas. And when I put that on, it, it, cooking feels a little more special now. It's very trivial and kind of silly, but it makes the experience a little more fun for me. Yeah. What about the restaurant industry right now? I know is going through quite an upheaval with the pandemic. You're an insider. How does it feel going through the pandemic as someone working at a restaurant and seeing your colleagues go through this? I think、too? in a lot of ways, there's always been a sense of camaraderie. At the same time, like the the larger picture is horrifying, and it does not look like you know there's like a real end in sight. It's just 
terrifying to see you know people push to open up indoor dining and to even have like outdoor dining like it, you're putting a lot on people that are not making that much money and have like no social safety net and it's it's really daunting to think about it definitely leads to like, some depression for me and it makes me really realize like how much things need to change no in some argument. sense it's like really amazing and like heartwarming to see like how much like people are going out of their, out of their way to support their favorite restaurants you're, you're giving people an opportunity to continue working and to make money and to like support themselves which it is like touching on the other hand i think like the government really just needs to step up and give the restaurant industry the support it needs it, it's just frustrating that it has to be one or the other right the fact that the government makes it so that in order to survive you need to keep working and putting yourself at risk instead of you know allowing some kind of stimulus package to support restaurants through this time so that they don't shut down um, and can continue to serve loyal customers and patrons ultimately it just comes down to the failure of the neoliberal system that so many people have lost their lives to what was mm -hmm. an avoidable disaster. There needs to be more of a push to try to help feed people and especially for free. And I, I think you've seen that um, in some senses in Chicago, you've seen uh, Kimsky down in Bridgeport con convert into a community kitchen. Um, and I think they have a set menu every week and they have like rotating chefs every week um you've so it's kind of like a pay as you can and if you pay the full ten dollars for a meal that that gets carried forward um and it, it is open to anyone for a free meal mm -hmm. at any time i think that's like a beautiful thing and i would like to see more of it um and, and i think like the government's response to all of this is really mm -hmm. disappointing um, especially in terms of just giving people the safety net that they need right now, you know, like a, a $600 check after 11 months of a pandemic is ridiculous and embarrassing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, any last thoughts, Tom, before we conclude for today, mm -hmm. um, anything that you'd like to share? Check out Tommy's Toddy Shops. <laughs> Yes, check out Tommy's Tommy Yeah, Shop. I am on Instagram, on Instagram at Tommy's Tommy What's Shop. The best way? Uh, you could also check out my website, Tommy'sTottyShop.com. Yes. That's T-H-O-M-M-Y-S. I already follow all of my listeners. Please go follow. Go buy Tommy's amazing products. I 100% stand them. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was such a wonderful and Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot discussion. of fun. That was Tom of Tommy's Toddy Shop. And once again, please follow him at Tommy's Toddy Shop on Instagram and buy some of his amazing cocoa putty that's now shipping nationwide in the US. We've come to the end of yet another episode of the seasoned podcast. I'm your host, Pranati Dewakar, and it's been a pleasure to escape the chill by talking chilies with you. If you've come to the end of this episode hungry for more as I am, I urge you to go buy Tommy's products and then message me on my Instagram account at The Season Podcast or drop me an email at theseasonpodcast at gmail.com. 
Tell me what's cooking and how you've been using chilies in your food. Also, feel free to tell me what other episodes you'd like to hear. Please leave me comments, questions, and other suggestions. For this episode, I'm going to leave out the musical offering at the end of the show. I'll add it to my Instagram profile instead, so that listeners from non-Spotify platforms can hopefully access this episode. To make up for this lapse, I'm going to give you a whole food-themed playlist that you can catch in the highlights of my Instagram account, again at The Seasoned Podcast. Stay curious, stay safe, and keep warm. See you next time.